Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To love yourself is to know yourself. So Mm. do the work, do the work to reflect, to contemplate, to know yourself, to know the truth of who you are. And maybe that is knowing what you're not. What am I not? What am I not? Right? So slowly, slowly beginning to remove identification, remove identification with with the false sense of self and allow the truth to begin to shine through. When we have this, love is all there is. Super excited to have you here on the Yoga Revealed podcast, Talia. It's an absolute blessing to have the opportunity to share this time and this space with you here in Rishikesh, India. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Amazing. <laughs> and for all the awesome viewers out there who have not had the opportunity of meeting you, Not only are you one of my favorite yogis that I've had the opportunity of learning with over the past years and really diving deeper into my own practice with since I've decided to come on this love and all is coming 300 hour yoga teacher training. Woof! Um, But you're an incredible thought leader, um, someone who I would say is not only on the forefront of really creating a deep awareness of yoga, but also an awareness that yoga is activism embodied activism. And I really feel that the way that you move in this world is an inspiration to all who you have the opportunity of positively influencing. And so I wanted to ask as our first little question, how did yoga find you? Firstly, thank you so much. And (laughs) truly, I feel the same way. And it's been such a joy from the moment I met you to to like where we are now. It's so nice to look back, you know, Mm-hmm. And like think of all those little moments we got to spend together over the years. And I just have so much love, respect, and awe at everything you do and everything that you are. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy that you're here. Um, it's a blessing to be here. Uh, yoga found me through my mom. 
So you didn't meet my mom, but I, I wish she came on this training. Mm. You guys would be best friends. You know, Aww. she's like sunshine and so sweet. And she actually did one of the 200-hour trainings. And she was ser- seriously considering coming to this one as well, but it didn't work out with mm. her time. Um, but she's um, she was my first teacher in so many ways. And when I was six, she was diagnosed with lymphoma. Mm. And it was pretty serious. This was like the, I guess, like mid-90s, mm-hmm. um, different time, even in terms of the what's a, what was available yeah. for cancer patients back then. Just really intense, very hard treatments. And my mom being like just a naturally um, spiritually driven person, she was looking especially at that time to connect with the meaning of the truth of everything. Yeah. And that's how she found yoga pretty quickly. You know, she got sick and immediately uh, afterwards, she was on this search for deeper meaning, being faced with the possibility of death will do this to people. Yeah. And um, she started practicing yoga and that's how I uh, was introduced to it. You know, I think I was around six the first time around that she was diagnosed, but it went on until I was about 11. Wow. On and off. Uh, now she is in complete remission and has been. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, and really has been care. since then. Since about, I guess the year was like 1999 when she went into complete remission. Uh, you know, it's always going to be a part of her life in a way. Once you've been that, uh, through that, you know, you have to go, she has to go to checkups like every two months or something. Sometimes they find something, they remove it. Uh, mm-hmm. But she really never let it become a part of how she defines herself. She never let it stop her. She got a deeper appreciation for every single day, living life. And um, so besides just the physical demonstrations of asana that I saw from her from a young age, asana meditation, Mm -hmm. um, pranayama that she would do, besides all of this, it was the, the living yeah. of the yoga. So again, like waking up every day with a sense of gratitude mm-hmm. and joy and awe. And, you know, she 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 really embodies this for me. And so I'm really happy that, really feeling really very happy every day that I get to call her my mom and that I get to trace back, Yeah, you know, my, uh, in my understanding or my connection with yoga in this lifetime to to her it's really special well i'm really excited to meet your mom because i can only imagine the resilience that she has considering how much resilience you have oh my god yeah you have to meet her i'm sure next She's time a- next time you're in tel aviv yeah we'll yeah all i'll go be there in october yeah. so we'll rock it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i feel like you know being here has allowed me to also see just how incredible you are not only as a yoga teacher, but also as a friend, you know, with Tony and even Aaron Rose, like telling beautiful stories about you guys and all hanging out back in the day. And just like having the opportunity to have, you know, met you back in the day when we were filming for Aloe Yoga. And ever since then, we've literally been friends. And like, you know, I just messaged you when I was in Tel Aviv and you're like, come right over, you know, we're going to go and hang out and go to this wonderful vegan spot and eat food. So I just wanted to ask you like where has like that sense of like openness and that sense of like always being able to meet people where they are like where did that first stem from 
It's mm, a good question. You know, I don't really, it's funny because when I think of myself, I don't necessarily think I'm a, an incredibly friendly person. But to hear <laughs> that from you, like, makes me so happy because sometimes I feel that I can be, um, like, in some cases, I think I can be uh, an introvert to a, a, a level where I'm very happy to just be by myself. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, I, love people so much and I think probably I could trace it to to this feeling of like just genuinely loving people I love people I love being around people and I love being around people who want to be sincere with each other Mm -hmm. and I don't know if this answers your question I'm I don't think I've ever been asked this before so I feel very like I need to ponder this myself But I think uh, it comes from, like always, our relationships with others are going to be an extension with a relationship that we have with ourselves. And I've always been um, really fierce in my determination to have a true relationship with myself Mm -hmm. and cut all the BS out. I want to know exactly what's going on with me. I want to know how I feel. I want to take responsibility for my feelings. Mm -hmm. And so I think when I do this, Uh, naturally the relationships with other people take on a similar um, shape or form. And I think that I, I especially love, you mentioned Tony and you mentioned Rose Aaron. These are people who are, you know, so committed to service and to giving, to educating, to their practice, to the embodiment of yogic values and uh, spending time with people like that is very easy, mm-hmm. you know? Totally. So it's it's very simple. I would say that I I love to be able to spend time with people if they're down to be real mm-hmm. and to be true and to be sincere. And it yeah. doesn't have to necessarily be pleasant, but it needs to be honest. Yeah. And I think that's where the interest comes from and also this deep um, a desire to share, to mm-hmm. share whatever it is that, I'm learning mm-hmm. or I'm figuring out or working on, I want to be able to share that with people. It brings me an immense amount of joy. Yeah, I can feel it because just being here and having the opportunity of feeling your passion for even the simplest of poses, you know, it's like like the simplicity of, bam, standing at attention at yes. the top of your mat in Samastitahi. <laughs> And, and how deep and, and poignant you can be in describing these awesome postures. And I feel like your passion must stem from, you know, obviously all of your years of practice, but also having some incredible teachers along your way as well. Yes. So I'd love to hear who have been some of your inspirations for your practice and some of the people who you really admire in today's yoga world. First teachers who instilled this sense of integrity and responsibility and really stillness uh, in my body were my classical ballet teachers. And people may not know this, uh, you know, unless you've been through years of classical ballet training, I think from the outside, it just seems like a bunch of people kind of like twirling around and dancing and plieing. Yeah. But actually, there's a lot that we can say. From my point of view, Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much similarity. uh, And I learned technique, really intense fascination with technique from a very, very young age. 
from these teachers. Um, I was, it really was like the most important thing to me in the world, for example, that in a tandu, the heel moves before the toes mm -hmm. and that the toes on the reverse tandu come come back first and the heel second. So these kinds of like fascinating technique moments or like holding still as we do at the end of a certain combination at the bar and dance, you know, you if you finish the combination, you hold still, you don't move, you hold still mm -hmm. and there's no extra movements. So then you turn around and do the other side as efficiently, as clearly as possible. There's even this deep sense of respect for the teachers. After each class, you go to the teacher, you bow down uh, before leaving. So there's mm -hmm. this, uh, also for the musicians, for the pianist in the room, same thing. So bowing down to the pianist, bowing down to the teacher. There's a deep sense of respect. You know, we would never bring items or shoes or anything into the dance studio is a sacred place. Every mm -hmm. hair was in place, everything. It's very sacred. Mm -hmm. um, so if there's anyone who's listening, who's had that kind of experience, they might yeah. be like, yeah, I get that. It's very similar. So I came into asana. I already said my mom was my first introduction to yoga. And I would occasionally go to a yoga class with her or like kind of mimic what she's doing. But I was much more interested in classical ballet. And that's really where I focused all of this desire to have a daily discipline, which I had as a child. Um, and it slowly transitioned. And then when I started moving into the yoga asana world, I was around 20 years old. And my first teachers, uh, my first teacher who really changed uh, shifted things in me to a very, uh, to an amazing degree was Jared McCann. Jared mm -hmm. McCann's my good friend. Yeah. And uh, he also has filmed for Allo. I don't know if you've met him. Yeah, I went to his class with you in New York. Oh, amazing. When I went to, um, I think it was yoga, or I think it was actually Tony's studio at yeah. the time. Yeah, 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 Lighthouse. Lighthouse, yes. So you came with me? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. good. So, so um Jared McCann was the first asana teacher to really, um, you know, kind of show me asana beyond what I had seen at that point mm -hmm. and really trigger a deep fascination and interest. Also, he, uh, he may not have been a classical dancer in his childhood, but he was trained as a classical pianist. Mm -hmm. And we had like a lot of the same kind of like... <laughs> We we get this like Interest. we yeah like yeah. we want to get to how do we find an asana, how do we cultivate an asana in such a way where we're paying attention to every single detail uh, internally externally, and it's this kind of, of it's kind of like a love language, and I think mm. some people really, I think we connected on this. He really, he, he acted in many ways as a mentor to me. I was very young. I was like 20 years old. Mm -hmm. I was very shy. I'd never used my voice before. I used my body a lot, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the way that I like to express myself. But transitioning to teach yoga was very hard for me. I was incredibly uh, insecure wow. and shy. Incredibly, like, could not speak. I would have never guessed that. Now I feel like, like you come in the room and, like, 
it's almost like you command a sense of respect. Like there's a, a deep sense of reverence that you bring into the room. And then when you speak, you're so poignant, so articulate, and so to the point, like you say, like no BS, like it's yeah. just boom. And I, I could never even imagine you just being shy or, or. I was incredibly shy. I, I was painful, painful to teach really? the first year. It was so unnatural uh, to me. Like mm. uh, meaning it wasn't, I wasn't a natural ability for me. Yeah. It was something I had to cultivate like blood, sweat and tears. A lot of work, a lot of work to get through the fear and because I also because I had this deep desire to be true it made the work harder mm -hmm. I didn't want to just sound like someone else like I was reading lines yeah. that felt inauthentic I didn't also want to just say something that I wasn't a hundred percent stand behind mm -hmm. so also that limited me and when you have that that those kinds of fears of not being true then it's almost like I can't possibly speak because nothing I say will be worthy of this amazing tradition and of this knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I think that that for a while is very hard for me. And I would really finish every class just shaken to my core. Like I don't, I like sweating, uh, crying, just oh. like cold and hot at the same, all the sensations of yeah. like, you know, and it took a long time. And uh, having someone like Jared there was amazing because, like I said, I tend to be like a little bit of an introvert and I take things really hard. Mm -hmm. And when he was there, he would just be the opposite. He mm -hmm. would just like say I'm crazy. <laughs> and that's kind of like what I needed to hear. Yeah. At the time, I didn't need someone to like necessarily uh, like – Say, like, or... like be like they're there it's okay mm -hmm. or like here's what you should work on he would just listen to me he would fully listen mm -hmm. and then just crack up laughing Aww. like you know <laughs> just be like genuinely like think that it's so funny that I'm like this to myself mm -hmm. and it alleviated a lot of the the uh, tense and like the density of it and he just told me to keep going mm -hmm. so him and my mom also also along the way uh, was someone who stayed all throughout all of that time, also encouraging me and saying that um, beautiful things, you know, like that she knows my intentions are pure and to just keep going, to not give up. And it's nice to have people like that. Um, so Jared definitely was one of the first teachers to really influence um, my asana practice um, and people like Dharma Mitra in New York City, uh, Jared and I and Tony and Aaron and uh, a lot of the people from that era in my life, we would often be there for his mm -hmm. master class. Mm -hmm. and, wow, yeah. yeah. And we would um, take his class together, definitely just being in the presence of that community at the time was inspiring. And also uh, uh, being around a teacher like him, you know, it was deeply inspiring as well. And I learned so much. Um, I'm trying to think. And of course, so many, so many teachers that I may not on the spot remember, but mm -hmm. I would say an incredible amount of very kind and generous uh, Bikram teachers, uh, teachers from the Ghosh lineage mm -hmm. who were amazing. Uh, amazing to be around. Wow, an incredible community of people that, you know, you, now 
maybe the name Bikram, of course, can be so um, challenging to to be associated with some, something positive. But I'm not speaking about the man. Speaking about just that in in that time, these studio owners and practitioners who are not him, yeah. who are different people, just practicing this style of yoga. And being just so incredibly welcoming and generous, and I learned so much from being involved with uh, these, with this community, very strong community in New York City. Doing the championships, I learned a lot from Mary Jarvis as well. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about that whole lineage, and a lot of people are not familiar with who Ghosh is. Yeah. I wasn't even familiar with who yeah. Ghosh was until I came to this yoga teacher training. And then yeah. I was like, I actually did see that man's face on the wall at the Bikram studio that I practiced yeah. in when I first started yeah. in San Luis Obispo. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like this is so wild that, you know, we hear of this, you know, Bikram yoga and it being Bikram's postures, but really he basically took the best postures out of this incredible practice that was actually synthesized by Pramahansa Yogananda's brother. Right. What? Like, yeah, you got to tell me more about this. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know this, uh, but uh, Vikram Chowdhury was a student of Vishnu Charan Ghosh, who is the youngest brother of the Ghosh family. Ghosh is the uh, birth name of Parvahansa Yogananda. He mm-hmm. took on this spiritual name later in life, but he's a part of the Ghosh family mm-hmm. based in Kolkata, India. And... Uh, Ghosh, uh, the Ghosh brothers worked together uh, in the 1920s, 1930s on a lot of research um, to revive Hatha Yoga knowledge. They came up with 84, uh, around 84 postures. They say 84, I think it's a bit more than that. But they came up with uh, 84 postures, which is really a classic numbers, a classic number of asanas in Hatha Yoga history. And uh, anyway, it's a long story, but... Um, Bikram uh, did study with Ghosh, and uh, when he decided to come to the West in the 1970s, I believe, he eventually started putting together a sequence. At first, he was teaching the asana like Ghosh does, which is whoever comes, he gives a kind of prescription, a number of asanas that they should do for a certain number of time, and then come back to see him and see if things have shifted. Almost as if like a a doctor would prescribe you like a medicine. It was like a specific yoga posture. Exactly. You do, you give a prescription. So Mm -hmm. you need to do such and such, do it for three months, come back, see me. After three months, we see what needs what we need to now shift. Um, and that's how he taught in the beginning. And then uh, as he began to um, gain more students uh, in the Los Angeles area, he started to come up with a sequence, a sequence that he would teach everyone. And he was looking to develop a sequence that everyone would benefit from. Mm-hmm. So generally, everyone would benefit from these postures. So out of the sequence, out of a, a set of maybe, uh, let's say, 95, uh, something like 95 postures, he pulled 26 and uh, he put it in a set sequence, uh, 90 minutes. You repeat each posture twice, except for the last one. Mm-hmm. And this is what most people know. But what most people, again, don't know is that this is derived from a specific lineage uh, based in Kolkata, India, that you can still go visit today. So you can wow. still go visit the Ghosh family now. That's so wild. Yeah. That's incredible. And would you say that, you know, in learning the Ghosh lineage and then also having your, you know, ballerina background, 
and then really like compiling all of these different teachings, that's what has led you to now present Love and All is Coming. And, and what is the, the ethos or the, the actual like foundation of Love and All is Coming? Well, Love and All is Coming is a yoga school that aims to present teachings in a clear, concise way that is drawn as much as possible directly from their source and that allows the students to verify for themselves or the practitioners to verify for themselves the teachings. We expect people to come with a certain level of doubt and recommend that they continue to have a certain level of doubt, to never have blind faith, mm -hmm. and that they should use their ability, their abilities of intelligence and discrimination uh, to affirm for themselves which, uh, if these teachings are useful. And if they're not useful, I would recommend uh, not <laughs> following with them. So I, the goal of uh, Love and All is Coming is to be a place of uh, education, of discrimination and discernment, uh, of developing non-attachment mm -hmm. and non-passion, but all under the umbrella, all of this, all of this education being sourced from the uh, mulayama of ahimsa. So non-harm is the backbone, tenant, the foundational stone of love and all is coming. So do all of the work through non-harm to oneself. Mm -hmm. uh, that In that way, these actions are loving actions and they are not coming from a place that is uh, misaligned, that mm -hmm. is misaligned, that is going against, that is harming because we can easily come to a practice and not and do the practice but internally we have not shifted at all out of the self-harming ways mm. you know so many times this can happen and then it leads to uh, a practice that is not sustainable that is not illuminating that is putting us even deeper in full identification with our mind, mm -hmm. just a different kind of identity, but still reattaching a very strong identification. So I love and all is coming is here to provide loving, loving education, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to provide a place where people can connect with each other as well, to meet people and to, I think, some of our trainees, they develop these lifelong uh, friendships yeah. and connections. So I think that's also a part of it. But I would say my primary reason for starting this school is to uh, firstly allow myself to be of service <laughs> <laughs> so that I can teach because that's something that's so important to me. Uh, but also to bring incredible teachers to this platform uh, and bring people together and really allow for learning to take place for unlearning to take place for um, revelations made simple, as simple as we can. Yeah. You know, I, these are all things that drive me to, to continue and build Love It All Is Coming. Well, I'm so excited to have the opportunity to be here diving deep into not only the practice of asana, but also the depth of learning the Sanskrit knowledge and the depth of diving deep into anatomy mm -hmm. and also just really having this opportunity of being immersed in yoga in India. Yeah. 
like absolutely this is the home this is the 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 real space of the the darshan this is the space of the the divine leela the the real wisdom you know and it's it's an honor and a blessing to be here thank you so much it's the honor is all mine honestly thank you so much andrew awesome to have you back here for round two you know we weren't just going to stop with only half the questions we have to finish this out so um I really enjoyed, uh, first off, the awesome conversation that we had with Adam today. Um, mm-hmm. Adam Keen, who came to class and basically gave us a whole dissertation on the history of yoga and uh, you know this way that these postures have evolved. And I wanted to ask you, um, because last time that we had uh, our wonderful conversation, we talked a lot about how you came from this athletic or what I would call like a dance background from mm-hmm. ballet. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who come to yoga, I would say, either have that athleticism or they have not ever done any type of like real movement. Mm-hmm. So how do you teach to both sides? How do you really like make sure that you're able to keep the athlete, the the person who's like more A-type personality, and also the person who's very much so a beginner, just beginning to discover their body. And, and how do you weave those two, I would say, like means of teaching together? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there it, this is something that's so special about teaching uh, asana. First of all, because we're seeing let's say in a, a walking class, right? When people walk in or a workshop or training, we're seeing many different types of people, different backgrounds, different abilities, genes, different conditionings, different minds, you know? And that's going to impact the way that they're receiving the information and what they're able to do with it. Um, but I think Regardless, I can't control how a person perceives what it is that I'm saying. So I have no control in that. Uh, But I I try to give instructions that are, um, that take the person inward into themselves Mm -hmm. and, um, and deepen the experience internally rather than necessarily it being something external. Um, so I find, you know, like you said the other day, we were here together, you said you make like even Samas Titihi, you know, uh, it's a, it's a really deep posture, the way that I experience it and the way that I teach it. And maybe for some people would be, well, we're just standing Mm -hmm. like, you know, but, um, so I find seated positions, even just, you know, sitting in Sukhasana, standing in Samas Titihi. I can talk about that for a long time Mm -hmm. and find a lot of interest there. So again, I don't know how like a type A person would be able to, if they're able to accept that Mm -hmm. and perceive it, or I don't know if the person without any movement background is able to appreciate that, that I have no control over, but I do know that I'm deeply interested and hopefully that is felt by seemingly, seemingly, you know, just like simple movements that the body is making or structures that the body is making. And I think that we can develop um, incredible internal depth mm-hmm. uh, inside of us and allow the posture to really be emanating from the inside out, whether it is samastitihi 
or Natarajasana, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anywhere in between, you know, standing, the way that we stand on our feet can inform the way that we stand on our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the posture itself, ultimately, uh, there is a spark of sameness mm. that remains the same internally in terms of the ability to focus and that um, sense of detachment that remains the same regardless of which posture you're doing and that's where to me the real interesting work is Mm. and with that being said I, i really like how you say that the interesting work because ultimately as teachers we can only speak from a space of experience Mm-hmm. So I want to hear about some of your experiences that you have had that have helped to inform your practice to really dive deeper into what I would call the more subtle nature of the energy that you feel. Because ultimately, a lot of the cues that I really appreciate from you come from how you teach the bandhas. And I would love to you or love for you to speak a little bit more on, you know, what the bandhas are to you and how they can really be spoken to in a class and to help people really dive deeper into that proprioception, into their own experience of self within the posture. Mm-hmm. Well, this, you know, is something that normally we do like several lectures on and like trainings on, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I will try to speak a little bit about my understanding or practice of Banda. So uh, Banda is a way to essentially lock or hold or move Uh, prana or energy I guess you could say or the um, the subtle form of the breath the more subtle form of the breath in the body the the movement the there are currents of movement in the body and if we're paying attention we might be able to tap into that and feel how different postures or different ways of moving can affect these currents in the body And with Banda, the way that I see it now, of course, Banda has meant different things over uh, the years, uh, over thousands of years. And it's developed into something new now with with Hatha Yoga as we know it now and Postural Yoga as we know it now. Um, The way that I teach Banda is by first looking at essentially forces that we can feel, like the force of gravity, for example, pressing down. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that we can begin to tap into both in rooting further down with gravity and then lifting up and against, lifting up and against gravity. So we're beginning to create essentially almost our own little internal gravity and then lifting up and out of it Mm -hmm. at the same time. And this creates this kind of internal opposition, this internal almost tension in the body that begins to hold the posture. Um, It it, it makes the posture a little bit more alive Mm -hmm. internally and steady. Uh, There is a kind of, it also engages just the right amount of the right groups of muscles and the right amount without us necessarily needing to think, you know, what's my glutes doing and like what's my quadricep doing so instead of doing that it gives us also this um, deeper access to a deeper intelligence in the body where I don't know maybe this doesn't make sense to people listening but um, 
we're beginning to access something deeper than the muscles, the, the actual force behind the movement of the body and creating currents, right? Or holding there. If there's naturally a current of energy that's flowing downwards, can we utilize it? Can we root down even further? And then also where can we lift up? How can we essentially allow most of the prana to circulate around, I would say, this part of the body, Mm -hmm. around this part of the body. Mm -hmm. We're containing, somehow beginning to create this inwards and upwards lift and a containment Mm -hmm. of the prana here, whereas normally, uh, if we're not using bandhas, uh, prana is beginning to um, essentially keep going on its way, on it, on, on its currents, and also with the senses and the mind and everything else, it, it's re- being redirected in a million different ways, depending, mm-hmm. again, on our senses. And in asana, when we're using things like bandha and breath awareness and drishti, we can begin to um, essentially lock or hold prana in a certain area. And depending on what it is that we're doing, I usually look at the spine Mm -hmm. for the asana as a cue to how to direct this prana. So again, we're generally keeping the prana in this portion of the body. And then depending on what the spine is doing, we can manipulate the shape of the body through the prana rather than manipulate the prana through the body. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the attention is is from the inside out. Yeah. The body begins to shift its shape from from internal communication rather than external, right? I don't know if that makes sense, but No, it does. I mean, I feel like that awareness of the the internal energetic awareness that becomes even more palpable is literally what helps us to be able to find focus in a handstand. Yeah. Or to find, you know, the depth of the Hanumanasana where we can reach our hands up and place our palms together and take that gaze, you know. And so I feel that, yes, that energetic awareness is literally what we're cultivating. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you have two children. Mm -hmm. How did your practice change during your pregnancy? And how did, like, giving birth to these wonderful beings affect your body? Mm -hmm. Well, my... Asana practice is not quite as intense as it used to be. So, you know, asana uh, and all of the hatha yoga practices, they used to be, you know, my primary practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that shifted over the years. I'm 35. And I told you, I've I've been doing this kind of like intense physical effort even prior to my asana practice and all the hatha practices, which I really went full in, um, And for many years, it was, again, like just full intensity there. Uh, And that's what I needed at the time. And then, you know, I think around age um, 28, 29, 30, it's like slowly we see there's like a little bit less of that is was interesting to me. So while I still keep up, um, I think movement is medicine. I think movement is necessary for humans, so we should move. And, you know, I love moving my body and I move my spine generally every day in, in 
uh, in every direction. So side mm -hmm. to side, backwards, forwards, inflection and twist. Mm -hmm. I, I will do that every day. Yeah. Um, but it'll happen when it happens. Whereas in the past, it was a strong, like a very strict discipline. And I would do, uh, you know, hours long practices. This is not the case anymore. So even before my pregnancies, I was already beginning to shift out of make uh, asana uh, being my, my main uh, primary practice and beginning to shift uh, a little bit out of that. And then uh, when I was having my, uh, my, when I was pregnant for the first time, I, I didn't, everyone experiences pregnancy a little bit differently. And to be honest, besides the obvious like physical changes, mm -hmm. there wasn't too much going on for me mm. other than that. So like, I didn't have a lot of things that, you know, other people have like told me about, mm -hmm. um, I essentially kept like this. no morning sickness or any of that kind of stuff. I just didn't have anything like that. So wow. I, my lifestyle stayed the same. Mm -hmm. Actually, both pregnancies. Uh, I think the second pregnancy, I led like six different trainings wow. up until I was nine <laughs> months pregnant. That's incredible. Uh, so, and, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that. And please don't take this as like, I should do this. And yeah. I should also, I think, I think that most of the time pregnant women should definitely like take it easy much more like relaxed <laughs> coming <And> from you <laughs> doing yoga and training until nine yeah. months that's yeah, incredible but, but i'm saying like that's fine for me my yeah. it's probably i don't know how it is for you and mm -hmm. i don't think that we should look outside of ourselves totally. to know what's okay with us i'm just saying that was more than okay for me because my energy levels were the same I didn't have aversions. sometimes we get like sensitive to things mm -hmm. i just nothing happened other than the fact that i was growing a baby Nothing happened that, you know, I was like pretty much able to demonstrate everything except for like, uh, you know, like spinal flexions. You yeah, can't no do locust pose. Yeah, no locust pose. Uh, I could still do a fair amount of things though. Wow. Um, and that was really fun. You know, it was really fun for me to spend my pregnancy doing what I love the most. Mm -hmm. And it was really fun. Um, but again, that I think what's important to highlight here is like we should not not think that this is would be the case for everyone mm -hmm. this is what was true for me i have i have very peaceful pregnancies they're very nice easy um i do get huge both of my babies were i think akiva was four kilos so that's about um 10 pounds yeah that's like a huge baby huge baby so especially I, for your size yeah that's I get so huge. wild yeah i get huge i get really big so that's <laughs> definitely different in terms of like my how my body feels yeah you know it's like very different but again no pain no discomforts like i really do love being pregnant mm. uh, i think birth uh this is like would have to be its own podcast, I think, about like my birth stories. But both uh, my first uh, birth, I I uh, started out at home and then was moved to the hospital when uh, there was meconium, which is um, the f baby's first poop. Mm. Meconium was with mixed in with the water, which broke. Yeah, and that's a sign of like babies in some kind of distress yeah uh and after you know several i don't know how many hours it was eight hours or something at the hospital with not much progression 
you know, doctors are obviously now beginning to say like, okay, it's time to do something. Yeah. <laughs> like it's been too long. And for me, I also felt like, okay, like I'm feeling very much like the right thing to do right now is to elect to have a C-section. I feel yeah. like this is the best thing for me. Again, like a, a 10 pound baby is quite huge yeah. in a tiny uh, frame. Like yeah. I'm very small. And um, I felt at peace and at ease with that, especially when I elected it completely conscious. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, in, it wasn't in any way an emergency yeah. or like stressful. Everyone stayed really calm and it was my choice. And um, uh, and it, I would say it was beautiful. It was beautiful because I was still awake, right? Sometimes in an emergency C-section, we... The woman is not induced a, a, and yeah. put under and so unconscious. Was, yeah, so I was awake and he was immediately placed on me. It was a beautiful moment. Mm. And then the second time around, uh, because my pregnancy with Elisheva also was, she was just as big, you know, just as big. And I didn't want to risk yeah. uh, anything. So at that point, I scheduled, mm-hmm. I scheduled a C-section. And I uh, worked with a doctor that does a very specific technique where even with a C-section, there's like a breathing mechanism. Mm. And we, Ezra and I both saw the baby actually come out as I exhaled. Wow. Right? So they usually, the the surgeon inserts his hand into the incision and kind of pulls the baby out. And in this kind of special technique, I exhale slowly into this kind of like tube and with the with the team of doctors instructions the the number of exhalations help to push the baby out wow. almost as if it's a vaginal birth and it's really cool we saw Elisheva come out and they immediately placed her on me and there was you know it was a special technique and because it's scheduled again everything is set up a certain way um, so it was both were beautiful. I think every birth is beautiful as long as we feel that we are active participants mm-hmm. and that we're at peace with what's happening. And, you know, so I had amazing times. And also after birth, um, uh, I can't complain. Like, you know, it's been, it's been really great. And I think a lot of that has to do with also my perception of body and pain and recovery and, all of that, you know, kind of spoke about that today with Ron Aaron. Um, yeah. The idea of pain and where does it really exist? Is it in the body? Is it in the mm. mind? Right. So where is it and how can we change maybe our relationship to it? So I've had incredible experiences with both uh, pregnancies, births, and also post-birth. Uh, what I do is essentially the same thing, just... Uh, no, I don't feel a pressure, you know, because like I said already before birth, uh, it's not like I have this like pressure to perform like advanced asana or yeah, something. Yeah. Or, you know, it's it's like very relaxed mm-hmm. and my primary practices are no longer just asana. So there's so much more that, you know, that I'm doing every day, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's uh, Sanskrit studies and um uh, chanting and studying of texts and philosophy or like writing my own books and manuals and whatever it is that mm-hmm. I'm doing. There's so much more mm-hmm. to my daily life than just asana. asana. And I love asana. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not important. It's very important. However, 
uh, it was never an issue for me to be like, oh my God, I can't do what I did, you know, 10 years ago or because again, it's like, I, there's such a, a, an ocean of things that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And you're really practicing that deep sense of contentment, being content with exactly where you yeah. are and realizing that, you know, this next phase of life will be different. Yeah. And that acceptance is what brings forth ultimate joy. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So contentment, when there is contentment, it exactly holds the key to, to joy and to enjoyment in life. Mm-hmm. So definitely like... Uh, there's so much every day that I'm curious about and grateful for, you know, um, just having a nice time. <laughs> As you should be. Yeah. Really excited to have you back here on the podcast. Thank and you. super stoked to have this opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into now what I would call the continuous expansion of Talia and love is all love and all is coming. Yeah. So I'm really stoked because, you know, being here at this teacher training, this is, is this your first 300 hour? The first 300, yes. Oh my goodness. I got to experience Talia's first 300 hour and it's been incredible. Yeah. And so I want to hear what is your vision for this incredible love and all is coming school? What is your vision for the continuation of how you're going to continue to teach and share your wisdom in this world? I never have too clear of an idea. So I am very much grounded in this moment now. And then how everything has happened so far is usually that people will, like large amounts of people will begin almost like a wave, you know, like suddenly a lot of students are messaging me, uh, whether uh, through email or through social media or through my app. And they're asking for something. And this sometimes happens. That's how I started with the 200 hour. And then the same thing happened with the 300 hour. And I said, okay, well, that's the next thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I take those messages really seriously, especially when it comes in large numbers. And I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. I know what I have to do now. (laughs) So a lot of times it really is something that I respond to rather than create by myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't really know exactly where, how this will continue to grow. I hope that I can continue whatever happens to just stay sincere and uh, continue to expand myself, right? So when I expand myself, when I do my studies, Mm -hmm. then I think this is what allows for expansion of Love and All is Coming and for the students who come and study with Love and All is Coming. So I know that I can work on myself. And by that, I mean uh, apply what I know, uh, integrate it and embody it, meaning be completely, uh, have such a, a level of understanding of what it is that I'm studying and learning and practicing that it becomes essentially the nature of who I am mm-hmm. or or maybe removes the, the non-truth to such a degree that the truth is able to shine through. And I think if I'm able to continue to do this, uh, then love and all is coming will grow, although I have no idea. I don't know what's next. I mean, a lot of people in the teacher training right now are asking about a 3,000-hour university. <laughs> yeah. So come on. Yeah. Where are you setting up? Rishikesh? Bali? Yeah. Costa Rica? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think that would be cool. Maybe, 
It'll be somewhere surprising like Scotland. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, for that talk about the cold. I mean,、yeah. we'll all be bundled up. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking when someone said that, like a university, I was like, okay, we can do like,、um, like Dr. X, you know? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's X Men. X Men, yeah. His name is Professor X. Professor, okay. Yes. I like those movies and I like where they, all those kids have a place to stay、mm-hmm. in the house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We just need a donor. Like a <laughs> I mean, it's possible. Hey,、yeah. Yoga Revealed listeners out there, I know some of you got those big pockets. Come on, I'm just saying. <laughs> We want to love and all his coming academy. Let's go.、Yeah. Let's go. Let's rock it. We'll be doing acro yoga,、yeah. deep back bends. Yeah, we can have、know? like different sections, you know,、mm-hmm. like different rooms for different things. I'm sure it can be amazing.、Yeah. Like a self sustaining. Uh, yeah, no power outages. Yeah. Straight up, fully immersed in the off the grid vibe while at the same time fully sustainable, all the fruits growing. Yeah, I think this could be amazing. Who knows? Maybe that, maybe that is a part of the future. I don't know.、Mm-hmm. Definitely isn't something that none of this ever happens、uh, just because of me. It's because, you know, people ask for it and then I do what I can to accommodate people's. Wishes and、mm-hmm. you know what they're what they're seeing. And when it comes to trainings, that's really something I can do. I can say, okay, I'm going to find a place. I'm going to find the best teachers to come and and help me with this. I'm going to spend my time creating the program and writing the book. And I can do all those things.、Mm-hmm. But you know, for a vision、mm-hmm. of like a, a place in the world where where people can really come to Lebanon is coming on a regular basis. Yeah, maybe. I think that really definitely would require lots of、um, lots of external help, though, if、oh, that was、okay. to happen. Yeah, it takes a team to make a dream. Yes. Yeah. You would know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are making dreams day by day. So I also wanted to ask you、um, you had mentioned, you know, like a cultivation of this deep sense of authenticity、um, for your students who are just now learning to teach. And getting into that space of really sharing their heart fully, what would be three steps that you can give them to really cultivate that deep sense of authenticity, not only with themselves, but also when they have the opportunity to present themselves as a teacher? <laughs> three steps. Three steps. <laughs> the method, authenticity.、Okay. Come on. <laughs> we're, we're all about the easy,、yeah. you know, actionable steps. Come、yeah. on now. Okay. <laughs> so the question was, How to、uh, be more sincere? Is that what you said? Authenticity,、uh, cultivating authenticity、okay. in themselves and also in being able to share that with others. Well, I would say the first step is knowing、uh, what, how it is that we're behaving or taking action that is not based, that is not rooted in truth. Like, first, we have to know what those behaviors are, like, what are the words that I'm using or Um, actions that I'm taking that are actually not rooted in the truth of who I am. And you can know this by when you reflect, when you reflect on your day or you reflect on something that you know, comes up in your consciousness, in your mind, and you're like, oh, I don't know if that was what I wanted to say.、Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to say that. That happens all the time. That happened to me like a few days ago. I was like, I didn't mean to say that. And then we have to, so I would say that's the first step is to kind of reflect on where it is that we're saying something or doing something that doesn't align necessarily with our truth or、mm-hmm. is rooted in, in our truth or the truth that we would like to cultivate, right?、Um, so that would be one. 
reflecting and knowing, acknowledging those things. Uh, then the second step would be not to uh, get in this kind of uh, punish mode. Mm. Like once you discover what those are, I think mm. it's a good idea to forgive yourself, right? So to accept and forgive yourself lovingly, to embrace yourself and say, that's okay. Mm -hmm. I said that. I didn't mean that. Uh, and that's okay. And if if you need to acknowledge it with a person, like let's say you said something to someone, but then you reflect on it. Like I didn't, that's not what I meant. Yeah. I could have said it better than owning it, right? With ourselves and then taking responsibility if possible with the person and saying, can I just please say yesterday when I said that, um, this is what I actually meant. And I'm sorry if it sound, it didn't come out the right way. Mm -hmm. You know, so taking responsibility whether it's internally uh, or internally and also externally with someone. And number three, uh, having faith. Um, so once we have acknowledged the things that we're doing that may not be aligned, and then we take responsibility for them and accept them and forgive, then the third step is now to have faith that uh we will do the best that we can, mm -hmm. right? We'll do the best that we can and we leave the rest, you know, leave the rest to God or leave the rest be. Yeah. Um, so however you like to think of it and then, you know, repeat the process. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Simple. Good. That was yeah. a great three-step. Come yeah. on, let's go. <laughs> on Isn't the spot. Yeah. yeah, that was good. Awesome. So I got another one for you. Yeah. So your training school is called Love and All is Coming. And I feel like that is such a profound concept. And what I wanted to hear is, you know, you've got this wonderful husband who it seems like you guys were like literally made for each other. When I had the opportunity to come and to witness your beautiful family and to go and to eat with you all and to just have that, that family time, it was like, wow, like this is really the magic of love. Like this is so beautiful. And so for you know, other people who are looking to find more love in their life, whether it's a significant other, whether it's, you know, the love, loving job that they want, or perhaps the incredible space that brings them happiness, like how can you help them in their cultivation of more love and more happiness in their life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thank you. Ezra is amazing. And mm. um, it's such a blessing to to experience life with him uh, by my side. And I am so grateful to have our family. Um, love can come in many different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, a romantic relationship or a partnership like that. I think that love is in everything. I think I, um, I think that Ezra came into my life, for example, at a time where I was very clear in my mind that I would never want to be in such a relationship, actually. I was really? very, I was very much, um, it was always very clear to me, no marriage, you know. Wow, I never, really? Absolutely. I never wanted to be married. I never wanted to have children. It was the last thing that I would ever like it's really shocking isn't it like, I'm like completely like I I don't know I, I didn't know that yeah so, that's so I was I think from the time I was like five years old I was already like I, I'm never doing that 
You know, mm-hmm. I am never getting married and I'm never having kids because I want my life to be about what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think I really saw that. Although I grew up in the most amazing family, my parents are amazing. But I also saw that, wow, it's a lot of work for people to have kids, you know, it's and And even as a kid, I think I also like didn't love kids, mm. like, which is funny. I was like a kid, but I was like, ah, you know, like. I don't want to go hang out with that. Person. I don't want to go to the sleepover. <laughs> exactly. I was a little bit, a little bit like, like a kid, but also I, I, uh, my son is a little That's bit That's exactly what I was going to say. I know my where son, your son yeah. gets it from yeah, My son is like that, where we're kind of like, mm. oh, God. Okay, like, yes, I know I'm in a child body, but actually. (laughs) This is what I want to do. Yeah. I remember when we got to, like, drive him around in Tel Aviv, he was like, look, Dad, like, I want to sit here and, like, hold me up like this. And, like, he's like, I'm going to stand. Very specific. (laughs) He is. So, yeah, Akiva is very similar to me in that way. And so I Mm. think even as a kid, I was like, I, I, like, knew. I was like, okay, I'm going to work. I want to develop myself to my full potential. Like, I want to know who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that was probably really smart. And I would recommend that people focus on looking within and developing uh, love for themselves. Mm-hmm. First of all, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that, you know, um, I become... Narcissistic. Exactly. Or, or like prioritize my, you know, me, mine, I, like all of me, me, me. It doesn't mean prioritizing this over everything else. It just means I want to live a life where I have enough time, I have enough capacity and space to mm-hmm. reflect on my nature. That's what I mean by that. Yeah. To reflect on my nature, to know myself, to know who I am, to at least have some years of my life that I can dedicate to this understanding. And I think that I met Ezra at a time where I had definitely been doing that for quite a long time. And again, it was a huge surprise to me uh, and anyone who had known me well that I would so, I was so quickly, you know, like left my life in New York and like just moved countries with nothing, you know, just moved countries and decided to spend all this time with Ezra and then Yes, I got married and yes, I had kids. And that goes to show that uh, actually, I think to me, this proves to myself just how much faith I do have, meaning the ability to let go also, mm-hmm. the ability like, yes, I know myself, but also I know when grace shows up, you know? Trust, yeah. Trust in that complete divine order of bringing things into your life at exactly the right time. Yeah, like, I know myself, but I also know myself well enough to know when I don't need to resist mm. and when my my when I can step into that place of wow, this is new. I never knew that part of myself. I never knew it was in there and that it's that this is possible. but uh, that's a big part of love too. and whether it's a person that brings that out or a flower or, Uh, your own meditation on yourself. I think that kind of love that takes us out of our maybe current perception of ourselves or uh, it's possible all the time. Anyway, I think love is understanding. To me, love is is truth. And it 
it can be felt practically through understanding, through knowing something so well, knowing with your whole being, knowing, understanding something so well that that you are it in mm. a way that you know it. And I think that this is uh, this is love to me. Uh, and when we when I think about it, when I what I suggest, because a part of your question is, what do I suggest for others? I think to love yourself is to know yourself. So mm -hmm. do the work, do the work to reflect, to contemplate, to know yourself, to know the truth of who you are. And maybe that is knowing what you're not. What am I not? What am I not? Right? So slowly, slowly beginning to remove identification, remove identification with with the false sense of self and allow the truth to begin to shine through. When we have this, love is all there is. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for that. That Thank was you. that was that was like tied with a bow. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, really nice. Yeah. So I, I do have two more little questions. Okay. Um, and one of them happens to be one of my favorite questions to ask yogis, and it is, how do you define yoga? Okay. Uh, very similarly to how I would define love. So uh, to me, yoga is both uh, uh, a means and a goal simultaneously. So uh, yoga is the samadhi or the embodiment the complete absorption in truth but it is also the path to that truth at the mm -hmm. same time so it is the means it is the means and it is also the goal uh simultaneously and uh, i see it again as the um freedom from falsely uh, falsely uh, attaching ourself to uh, notions or concepts uh, and living our life based of these false concepts, living our life with these um, identifications, strong identifications, which, which then create how it is that we in, uh, respond or react to our environment, internal and external, creates a lot of suffering and misunderstanding in the mind. And I think that yogis are able to liberate themselves from suffering through understanding of what they are not, mm -hmm. understanding of the mind, um, understanding of the cause, the cause of the suffering, and then the effect of the suffering. And with time, this understanding, like I said, the more we concentrate on something, the more we meditate, contemplate, listen, reflect on something, the more the intelligence there grows mm -hmm. and uh, the ignorance begins to fall away. So yoga is all of those things. It's the practices, but it's also the result of the practice. Yoga is something that's necessary. Yoga practice is something that's necessary for those who want the truth. And it's there for people who who are seeking this truth in themselves. It's something that is amazing for people who are able to tune in, um, but also 
the the magic of it is that it is um it makes itself available to everyone there are so many entry points um and all of them are beautiful mm. uh and it kind of touches people exactly where they need to be touched and people are able to connect with yoga almost everyone you yeah. know can just connect with something uh you know i've even seen when i was uh briefly living in jerusalem i would see like you know super ultra orthodox like women you know like ultra ultra orthodox mm -hmm. very religious but uh they would be so curious you know about mm -hmm. yoga and like can you teach me like yoga what is it it's mm -hmm. like so interesting and they loved to learn like how to breathe you yeah. know like how to use their breath how yeah. to meditate on their breath how to like just do simple movements in their spine and concentrate on the spine moving or meditate on that and that was you know it just goes to show that it's also something that is universal to me yoga mm -hmm. is also universal it is it transcends all apparent differences it's a truth that everyone can experience it's not based on blind faith whatsoever it's also something that people can verify yeah verify like i yes <laughs> yes it works you know that's what i also love about it definitely. it's definitely not i i would never i would never be able to practice anything where i just had to blindly agree you know and yoga is perfect also for those people who are who want to understand deeply and want it to make sense mm -hmm. and want there to be a clear path yep. and a goal that is stated, you know, and that's what I love about it. It's all of those things. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. That was such a dynamic answer. And I really appreciate you really diving into the depth of it being not just a, a result, but also a means to getting to that result. Mm -hmm. And um, that leads me to our golden nugget. So for the practitioner out there um, who may be someone who is losing hope or losing faith or in that space of, you know, feeling like there's more darkness than light, what would be a word of advice that you can give them? Mm -hmm. uh, firstly, it's okay. You know, if you're feeling this way, it's okay. Feelings are coming and going. So it's okay to feel whatever it is that you're feeling at the moment. And there is a lot of uh, pain in the world and pain that's involved in being alive. So if we sat here and tried to look for reasons, you know, like if we listed all the suffering of the world, it would be really upsetting, you know, to think about all the people and animals and plant life and just beings everywhere that are suffering in some way. Obviously, there, there is suffering. And this is what all, all of the uh, darshanas, all of the philosophies that come from India all agree on, right? That suffering is a part of being here. It's a part of being here. So firstly, if you're feeling pain, if you're feeling that there's a lot of darkness, uh, then... In a lot of ways, you're right. There is a lot of suffering in the world. And uh, it's important to acknowledge this and to feel the depth. And I would say, let yourself feel the depth of that pain and sorrow. And at the same time, 
if you can feel the depth of it fully and maybe even let it be expressed through you. So feeling it means allowing it to be held and embraced and uh, expressed in some way. So whether it comes out through weeping or crying or praying or writing or movement that helps you to channel that energy, whatever it is, I think the important thing is, is to acknowledge it, not to feel guilty or bad for feeling the way that you're feeling, uh, to, to let it be expressed in some way. Um, and then also to know that those feelings don't define you. So the feelings are valid. They're fine, but also they are not ultimately who you are, right? So it's kind of like you can think of, um, you can think of all the thoughts and all the feelings that you're having that may bring you down and maybe dark. You can think of them as being um, uh, little waves, right? Little waves coming up in the ocean and coming back down, mm -hmm. coming up in the ocean and coming back down. And you are watching, right? You are watching these waves and you are able to observe them. And once you are able to make that distinction between uh, my feelings, my thoughts, my feelings, my thoughts, and the observation of them, right? Make the distinction I think this is very helpful. So at least to know that you're not your thoughts and at least to know that you're not your feelings and to know that whatever you're feeling is fine and that it passes with time. And then also at the same time to begin to cultivate, cultivate uh, contentment. How do we do this? By allowing life to be, right? Whatever is outside of your hands, outside of your control, let it be, let it be. So there is a kind of uh, spiritual endurance that's being developed. It's outside of my, I can reflect on myself. I can um, create less harm with my intents and uh, words and thoughts and actions. But there is a lot of things that are, that is outside of my hands. So this is where we see the concept of faith or uh, God as being a kind of almost a psychological need for people. Mm -hmm. Like we need to be able to communicate or have faith in the divine or in the larger picture. There's a lot of things that if we're zooming in too close, it's it. none of it makes any sense. So also creating some spaciousness, consider who you are and who you are not. Consider what you can, what actionable steps you can take to reduce suffering and what you cannot do, what is beyond what your personal actions are. Either way, I think that the most important thing that we can do in the world to improve the world is to liberate our, ourselves from ignorance. All right, so the best work that we can do is to embody the change, to be the change you do that yourself. So when we get overwhelmed with everything that's going on in the world, and there's so much, right, to fix and to do and to um, shed light on, it's overwhelming, it's dizzying. But what can we do breath by breath, word by word, day by day, slow down, zoom out, zoom in, right? Sometimes we need to zoom in, look within. Sometimes we need, when we get overwhelmed, zoom out. I'm on earth, a ball in space, right? Yeah. Zoom out. Zoom out a little bit 
and then big picture. See the big picture, then zoom right back in. What's in my heart? What's in my heart? What qualities am I cultivating? Right? So with time, when we know what we're not, we know what we are, we allow space for feelings to move freely, right? In the ocean of the mind. And um, we have a, a sense of contentment with what is, meaning acceptance of what is from here. Joy can also begin to grow from this sense of baseline contentment or gratitude for what is. Even if challenging feelings arise, I let them be. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And the Yoga Revealed listeners are brighter and lighter for the wisdom that you shared today. Thank you so much, Andrew. Mm. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Talia. Blessings. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Andrew. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.